0: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. But please call me Mike. For the past two years, I've been hosting for new books, and I've had the opportunity to meet a number of my professional heroes, various scholars and journalists whose works I've admired. Today I get to talk to with one of my childhood heroes, professional surfer and top model Buzzy Kerbox. Like me, Buzzy Kerbox grew up on Oahu. Also, like me, Buzzy was drawn to the Hawaiian surf, where he had to deal with some of the issues of being a howley or a white kid in the islands. He's about 12 years older than me, and I remember when he burst onto the professional surfing scene in the mid 1970s, winning the World Cup in 1978. At that point, he entered my personal pantheon of sports heroes alongside Bruce Lee and Muhammad Ali. Just as his professional surfing career was taking off, he was discovered by the famed fashion photographer Bruce Weber, who launched his modeling career. In the early 1980s, Buzzy's face was internationally known when Ralph Lorenz selected him as the lead for the polo campaign. So I'm going to just throw a little self-history in here. Uh, I also worked as a model in Honolulu in the 1980s, but obviously never got anywhere near Buzzy's success, either uh, in modeling or surfing. Um, but in 1985, I did get to do a shoot with Bruce Weber for Italian Vogue, and I was thrilled when I got to work alongside Buzzy, in uh, I think the same year in '85, In the 1990s, uh, Buzzy and Laird Hamilton developed a new technique for riding massive waves. For those unfamiliar with surfing, um, it is difficult to understate the importance of Laird and Buzzy's contribution to big wave surfing. They really revolutionized the sport. Buzzy's life coincides with several key phases in the history of surfing, the creation of pro surfing, the crossover appeal of images of surfers being used to sell a lifestyle, and the more recent innovations in big wave tow and surfing and foil surfing, as well as the revival of paddleboarding as a competitive sport. Buzzy has written a memoir called Making Waves, and it's presented in a scrapbook style, full of amazing photographs and engaging stories. Sitting down with the book is like meeting the bearded guy from the Dos Equisads, you know, you know, the most interesting man in the world. So, Aloha Buzzy Kerbox, welcome to New Books in History. So great to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, and it's I'm I'm thrilled. I'm I'm trying not to be too much of a frothing groma <laughs> uh, chatting with you, but this is this is a big one. Um, so Making Waves is part memoir and part history of surfing. Why did you decide to write this autobiography?
0: Well,
2: I took a a writing class when I was in college on Oahu. And uh, in the class, they said, keep a journal. So I started keeping a journal. And as I traveled around the world on the pro tour and modeling, I kept my journal and then I used it to like I'd clip in bus tickets or postcards and stuff along the way. And at the end, I looked back and and I had these great stories. And I went, "This, you know, I felt coming from Indiana and becoming a a really good surfer was kind of an interesting story." And I always thought someday I'll write a book. So I I had that thought, but I never acted on it. And. Um, few years back, my wife said, you keep talking about writing a book, so why don't you just do it? So I buckled down, got out all my stuff, boiled through all the thousands of pictures of of me and, and pictures that I'd taken and started making a book. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the photographs are just fantastic. And I think even
1: non surfers will just be blown away by um, some of these images. And the, I love the, uh, the photographs from the 1970s on the North shore of you and the other, the other pros. Again, I was like, I was 10 in 1977. So like, these were, these were like the guys whose names I was writing on my school book in class and like looking at pictures of the magazines So seeing these old photos and some of them candid photos um, on the beach and it's just such a different um, portrait of what top level surfing was like. It's it's much more accessible, more human. Those people are like around on the beach, um, and I, and I really love the scrap, the scrapbooks uh, format. Um, as a historian, it's cool to see the documents. I mean, this is the stuff you made out of history. Did you did you write journals through the rest of your life, or really just in that time period when you're on the
2: tour? Just in that time period, unfortunately, I wish I'd kept at it, but some of my inspiration for the scrap scrapbook style was Peter Beard did this. uh, He was a photographer, went to Africa and shot like him uh, coming out the mouth of a crocodile, writing in his journal and taking pictures of people and that. And then like there'd be blood on the page. And I just, I love that. Excuse me. I love that style. So I wanted to incorporate that style into my, my book.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it. It works in so many ways. I mean, it's it's a it's a great read. Uh, it's a it's a great coffee table book. Um, good good present for any holidays coming up. Any birthdays? Anybody out there? <laughs> so um, the book is your life story, but it centers around surfing. Uh, the other day, one of my friends, Allison Dean, um, who just wrote an amazing book on women in boxing, and I'm going to get her on the the podcast soon. Uh, she asked me what surfing meant to me, and um, I was stunned. Not so much by the question, but by my inability to answer it. Um, surfing has been a part of my my life and impacted me uh, me in so many ways and impacted so many decisions I made in my life, um, often to the detriment of my career and my relationships and definitely my savings accounts uh, once I got addicted to boat trips to the Mentawai Islands in Indonesia. Um, so it's such a part of my life. I couldn't imagine me, Mike Van, without surfing in my life. Um, and it was really sort of an unthinkable question. So, <laughs> now that said, I'm going to give you the unthinkable, the impossible question: what What does surfing mean to you? Like, what What does it mean on like a like I don't know, maybe even sort of a spiritual level in your life?
2: Well, <clears throat> a friend of mine's got a, a bumper sticker on his uh, refrigerator in Malibu. It says, "I could have been anything if I weren't a surfer." <laughs> but what happened? I I got hooked on surfing when I was ten. It became the center of my life. It, it it became all I wanted to do. If the surf was good, uh, forget school. If the surf was good, forget work. I mean the, when the waves were up, that's where I wanted to be. If I wasn't there, I was like sick in the stomach. It's like I've, I'm missing a swell. And it's just um, it's something that I, I wrap my whole life around and it, it's it's about being in the ocean and, and, and tapping into the energy of the ocean and the, the freedom you feel. And, uh, it just, it's more than just a sport. It's a lifestyle that, uh, that I've lived and, and my whole life has been wrapped around and decisions are made about what I'm going to do based on what the surf's doing. But this, this almost didn't
1: happen, right? You, uh, you're not originally from Hawaii. You moved to Hawaii when you were 11, but you, did you come from another surfing place?
2: Uh, no, I didn't come from a <laughs> surfing place. I, I was born in Indianapolis and in the summer we'd go to Florida f- on vacation. I just, re- I remember one year we're in Florida and I saw a Beach Boys album cover where, where we were, there wasn't really much surf, but I saw a Beach Boys album cover with surfing on it and planted this little seed in my brain that that looked really cool. And, um, one day back in Indiana, my dad came home from work one day and said, kids were moving to Hawaii and I just went hallelujah <clears throat> my my older brothers weren't quite as thrilled they're like well I don't know if we want to go it was, you know I got my friends and but I was I was excited from the moment I heard we were moving there and uh I, I just I couldn't wait to do it and I just thought in my mind I'm going to get there and I'm going to go out and find me a pet dolphin and surf and live in Hawaii It's just like I couldn't wait to go so Um, my mom was going to go out and look for a house. And I said, mom, I'll go with you. So I went with her. We flew to Oahu, uh, looked around and found a house in Kailua. And we're at the time we were staying in a hotel at Waikiki and I took a surf lesson and that's when the hook got set. And I I told when I came in, I said, okay, um, call, call everybody, tell them, come on out. She's like, no, we we've got to go back. To Indiana, you got to finish school. We got to sell the house. We got to do. I, I, no, I'm not leaving. Just tell them, come on out. <laughs> We're here. And I, I love it. But we had to go back. I had to finish school and then uh, went back to Indiana, finished out school. We got in the Country Squire station wagon and uh, drove across the country to San Francisco got on the Lurling and sailed into Honolulu Harbor in yeah. 1967.
1: And for, for those of you um, unfamiliar with the history of Hawaii, the, the Lurling was the, the main passenger ship between uh, San Francisco and Oahu. Um, my mom took it uh, in the fifties. She was a little girl. Um, so like that, that uh, it, it was, you know, it, that, that's like an incredible sort of rite of passage and, and for that time period. So let's admit, I, and there's a photograph of the Lurline in, um, in your book, and I love that. Um, did you start surfing right away? In, and where were you living?
2: Uh, we lived in Kailua, and there was a little beach break down, down there, a little shore break, not much of a wave, but enough to get going. Uh, I wanted to surf right away. My, the neighbor was a surfer, and I bought my first board from him. I think it was like a nine-foot Hobie. And uh, I just started surfing shore break every minute I could. My brother surfed a little bit, but they didn't have the passion for it that I did. And I just stuck with it. And that's all I wanted to do before school, after school, surf, surf, surf. And then I um, started uh, competing in some amateur contests and, and worked my way up through the amateurs.
1: Yeah. And so who were your, your role models and, and favorite surfers from that era? Um, who did you who did you really admire?
2: Well, in the very early days, it was um, I in, in competition, there was a guy, Michael Ho, that was uh, a really good. He would win a lot of the events. And and so I really wanted I, I would at first I'd get through a heat or two. And then, you know, by the second year, I was making the finals almost all the time. I usually get third or fourth, and Michael would usually win. And the division above me with, the, was another guy, Larry Bertelman. So the amateur divisions in, in Hawaii were were pretty competitive, and they had, have contests all over the island. And so I grew up uh, competing with Larry, watching Larry and Michael, and then uh, so I got a little older, going out to the North Shore and uh, sitting on the beach. Uh, I'll just never forget watching Jerry Lopez at Pipeline. His his style and and the way he could uh, ride the tube and come out with his casual approach. It was just like, oh my God, I want to be like Jerry Lopez.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean Jerry. Jerry, there's again for the, for the non surfers in the audience. I mean, there nobody has the grace and and poise of Jerry Lopez surfing um, uh, Pipeline in the in the 1970s. And like looking back uh, on the equipment at the time, like. Compared to what we have now, it's so primitive, and to have that much, again, poise and grace, under the conditions of like you know what one of the most intense waves in the world, um, the Bonsai Pipeline. I mean, it, it, Jerry Lopez is just in some ways uncomparable. Um, so what was it like being a Howley kid, uh, surfing in Hawaii in the nineteen seventies? Um, this was the time of the so-called Second Hawaiian Renaissance. A reigniting of Hawaiian consciousness and resistance to American rule. I mean, you you moved to Hawaii in what '67, so that's um, not even a decade into statehood at that point. Um, and you know, as a child in the '70s, I witnessed the ways um, that the the Hawaiian Renaissance sort of trickled down into um, some some tension and anti anti howley sentiment in the street and in the water. Um, what was your experience like? I mean, you're you're a Howley kid from Kailua up on the North Shore. Um, and and the North Shore was a different place then. Um, it was, I mean, it was pretty wild west. Um, what, what were your experiences like?
2: Well, going to school in Kailua, um, you know, there Kailua, there was a lot of Howleys in Kailua. But once I got into Kailua High School, it was next to Waymanalo, so there was a lot of Hawaiians and um one day, of course, I got into a scuffle with somebody and was like, okay, meet after school and we're going to fight. So, uh, after school we met and, uh, the crowd gathered around and this guy threw a punch and I dodged the punch and grabbed him and flipped him over on his back on the ground. And he was winded and, and the fight was over. But uh, growing up with two brothers, I, I never was much of a boxer, but I, I learned how to wrestle to kind of defend myself. So I just kind of, uh, um uh, the, it just came natural i just spun him and after that you know i really never had another fight i i was just i'm not a violent person i don't like to fight so i find a way to you know resolve things non violently but in in school too at, at high school i became friends with roy franco who's the tackle on the football team <laughs> i walk around with roy and nobody messed with me and i just uh So at school, it was all right. And then uh, being out on the North shore, there was some places, you know, there's back then it was different because in the lineup, you respected the elder guys and the local guys and, and you didn't, you didn't drop in on them. And if someone's out there sitting at pole position, waiting for a wave, then you respected that and you waited and worked your way deeper. You don't just paddle around that guy and think you're going to take the next wave. And if you did back then they'd give you a slap and say, go in. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, you went in and, and took it and, and got out of the out of there. Now everything is, you know, filmed and shot and you touched me, I'm calling the police and it's, it's, it's a different world. But back then it was, it was the hierarchy of, of locality and size of the guy. And, and uh, you just had to respect that and be humble, try to get your scraps of waves when you could and get your set waves when you could. And by respecting them, they respected you, and I was uh, 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 able to avoid conflict.
1: Yeah, and I, and I, as I recall, that I think that sort of ethos um, of respect was much much stronger on the North Shore than uh, I lived in town off Waikiki, where it was kind of just like free fire zone Sometimes, um, was there any any difficulties entering into the uh the amateur circuit or pro surfing as a as a holly on the north shore or were your 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 abilities at that point were speaking for themselves
2: yeah once i was out on the north shore it was uh, i worked my way and i knew michael ho and i knew some of the local guys and we'd hang out so it was it was not an issue back at makaha in the earlier day i uh i was uh warming up for a contest and i ran over and ding one of the local kids boards so they surrounded me on the beach and were just about to give me a, a pounding when Rel Sun came in and saved the day. But uh, on, on the North Shore, you know, really all the years I've seen fights, I've seen punch outs in the water. But I've just with a, a humble and and the right attitude, I was able to avoid it through, through pretty much throughout my entire career. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: so your professional surfing career started. Uh, right as international professional surfing became a thing, you and your cohort essentially invented being a pro surfer. Um, wh- what was that like, and 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 what were the opportunities that you got, and did did you imagine this? Like, I mean, what it, it's it's just it's such a new thing at that time, and you were right there.
2: You know, back then there was there was some pro contests out on the North Shore, and you had to be invited. I don't think there was trials or anything. So I surfed all the amateurs and then go watch the professional events. 19- 19 there, there were, and excuse me, but there, there were kind of family events as I recall. I remember being a little kid on the beach and like
1: the families were down there. It wasn't like these, these big, you know contests they have now you know like the 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 infamous OP pro contests and, in, in Huntington
2: Beach that turned into riots it was like a family affair yeah there was the the cow family they'd pull up in their big truck and saw the dad and the mom and the brothers and they'd all be there it was yeah really family and just you know fun events but in 1974 I won the Smirnoff amateur at sunset and by winning the amateur, I was invited to the pro event, which oh, I was just thrilled. And how, how old were you? I was uh, probably 19. Or no, actually, probably younger, 74. to figure that one out, but in uh, teenager. And yeah. so I got to compete in the pro. I made it to the semifinals at sunset, and then they held it off till the next day. Well, the next day was 25-foot Waimea, the biggest surf ever for a professional contest that, that – that record held for a long time. And again, again uh, non-surfers in the audience. Um, Waimea
1: Bay is, you know, one of the premier big wave places, surf spots in the world. Um, and it is, you know, it's it's a wave that requires um, uh, obviously a lot of bravery, but a, a different level of technical skill and athleticism and, um, and sort of specialization in some ways. And for them to have this surf contest there I mean, this is again one of these sort of, you know, in crucial points in the history of surfing, and that, as you said, that that the record for the biggest waves in a contest stood for a number Dec- of years,
2: decades, right? Decades, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was big wave riders, and there was competitive surfers, and pretty much the really good big wave riders weren't the competitive surfers. But um, excuse me. So anyway, I made it uh, to the to the semifinals that morning, I just saw the biggest waves I've ever seen. I didn't have the right board. Uh, I was scared out of my mind. I thought they were going to call off the contest. But uh, Fred Hemings, the contest director, said, what do I have to do? Go out there and show you guys we're going. So I went out in my heat. Uh, I got last in my heat, never so excited to lose. Because <clears throat> <clears throat> you didn't want to have to go back out. I, I didn't have to go back out. and uh, But after that, because I competed as a pro... I couldn't be in the amateurs anymore, so I was in limbo for a few years. And then the uh, Randy Rarick was doing a tour, and there were some random events in South Africa, the Gunston 500, a couple other events there, and uh, one in Brazil. And so he said, you know, you want to go on this tour, and you can be in the trials. I went, okay, yeah. So, I mean, there was no real world tour. There was just these random events. That sounded great. I uh you know financed myself sold everything i could worked hard painted houses did stuff and bought a ticket uh, on that trip and at the end of the year they uh decided we're gonna make the, a world tour and i was 10th in the world it's like wow this is pretty cool uh, what year were we in the top 10 that was uh 1976 yeah first year and then uh so 77's come along and there the tours come in and i didn't really have any sponsors so i was writing letters uh different clothing companies and different, uh, you know, watch companies. And, you know, I'm going to be a professional surfer and we sponsor me and I, nobody would sponsor me. Then, uh, in Kailua, uh, Rob Burns started this little shop called local motion. And so he was my first sponsor. I got two surfboards, a t-shirt and a bar of wax, and sorry, I can't help you with your plane ticket. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I want to run that back. Your first sponsorship was two surfboards, a t-shirt and a borrow axe? Yeah, that's right. Wow. Uh for uh you know, listeners, if you're not familiar with professional surfing today, take some time to google the salaries of some of the top surfers. <laughs> they're they're doing a little bit better than that. <laughs> um so what um what were so what was the high point of your professional career?
2: Well, then I went on uh, on tour and started going, uh, you know, uh placing an events and making enough money to get to the next one. And, and, uh, you know, trying really hard, but a lot of the guys were just better surfers than me. I was, I was good, but I wasn't as good as some of the best surfers in the world. And so, uh, back then it was, you had to catch three, sometimes four, or even five waves in a heat. So paddling became, um, I, I thought, well, what can I do? Like if I'm a better paddler, then I'm going to have more chance. So I started paddle boarding doing these local races at the hour canoe club and became one of the fastest paddlers in the world to help my surfing. So I had to, I I consider it average skill. I mean, compared to the best surfers in the world, but I had a phenomenal will that I I wanted to do well. And I kept placing, but I wasn't getting the notoriety and Larry Bertelman was a star and Michael Ho and these other guys were stars. And I was kind of just in the back of the pack. And, uh, my dad just kept telling me, you got to win one. You got to win one. So finally, 78, I won the World Cup at sunset. And that was huge for me. I won $8,000. I'm like, I can buy anything I want.
1: <laughs> and and this was another big moment in the history of surfing because it was televised. Yes. And was that on, on NBC, what? NBC, Wide World of Sports? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, ABC, Wide World of Sports? ABC. ABC, yeah. ABC yeah. yeah. I mean, so this was like, had, had they been televising surf contests prior to that I think Not. they
2: had done one or two very very little so this this is new yep. this is a new thing
1: you get a national audience um you uh, you avoided the agony of defeat as I used to say that wide yep. world sports yeah and you you win you win the World Cup
2: on national television so after that things got easier then then I got more sponsors that actually helped with the plane ticket and <laughs> board bags more, and, wax, and, wax, <laughs> more wax and a couple more t-shirts and and uh by that time the world tour was becoming more of a of a a, a real circuit and so i was on the traveled on the world circuit till 83 and it just uh was a, a great time to travel around the world and events in in a bunch of different places and that was that was my life uh, that's 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 amazing and
1: again that was as that idea of being a pro surfer on the world tour was created, you're right there at ground zero. Um, so different than the world of professional competitive surfing today. And um, we're speaking on July 27th in 2021. And like as we're speaking, and they're probably holding uh heats in the um in the Tokyo Olympics for surfing. Um, what or it's probably not not probably not quite yet but at some point today. Um, oh, it's finished it's finished it's oh. finished oh okay um well I don't know who won so tell me who won and um what do you think of surfing being in the Olympics? Italo,
2: Italo from what? Brazil uh, won it and uh Kanoa igarashi uh, was uh silver medal yeah. and the women's Carissa Moore won it from Hawaii, from
1: Hawaii. okay uh,
2: yeah. I I think it's phenomenal to see surfing, make it to the Olympics. I n- never really thought I would see the day that it happened, but that's the ultimate pinnacle of competition and, uh, have it, uh, go down. I was a little concerned there might not be enough surf, but it looks like the waves were good in Japan and they got it done and, uh, helped put surfing on the map. But uh, I'm, I'm blown away. I mean, coming to California in, in Hawaii, but the resurgence of Hawaii, of surfing, Everywhere, everybody wants to surf now. It's like there's surf schools, there's beginners. Like, surfing has been kind of cool, but people seem to like to watch it before. Now everybody wants to do it. People from all walks of life they they want to surf, and the popularity of surfing has just soared. And I think having surfing in the Olympics will really help that. Yeah,
1: Yeah, um, uh, I I say as a grumpy middle-aged guy, uh, for better or worse, um, (laughs) because one thing we've seen here in Santa Cruz during the pandemic is just this when everything was shut down and, and parks were closed, everybody started surfing. And um, there's a flood of those Costco uh, $95 surfboards in the lineup. But um, you you got good vibes. So I'm not going to not going to grump you out here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's, let's transition to your, your second act, um, your modeling career, uh, which took off like very quickly, much like your pro surfing career did. Um, so you were discovered by Bruce Weber, who's you know one of the one of the world's great fashion photographers. How did how did he discover you?
2: Well, it was uh, 1978, and, and while I was in Australia uh, competing, I after the Stubby's event at uh, Burley Heads, I was uh, struck in the stomach by my board and ended up in the hospital down in, uh, Melbourne, the Royal Melbourne hospital or something. And they, uh, w- were afraid that, uh, the, the impact had severed my intestines and that it was going to, I was going to bleed internally and die. And they said, we need to do, uh, immediate exploratory surgery. And I said, exploratory surgery. I go, well, when can I be back in the water? And the doctor looked at me and said, well, we'll have you back in three or four months. Isn't that great? I said, no, I've got bells on Saturday, no surgery. You know, I cared more about surfing than if I was going to die. I, I I had to make it to Bells. So while I was in the hospital, I, uh, wheeled over to the, uh, pay phone, the nurse's station, asked if I could, I mean the, the phone, I asked if I could make a collect call. So I called my dad to let him know that uh, I was in the hospital, but I was all right. And he said, by the way, there's This, uh, guy from New York, Bruce Weber, this photographer called you and he wants you to go to New York for Vogue magazine, give him a call. So I hung up the phone and, uh, I said, can I make one more call? This is, this is from your hospital bed from the hospital. Yeah. (laughs) And I make one more call and I called Bruce, Australia to New York. I don't know the time difference, but he answered the phone and said, uh, yeah, I'd love to, I'm doing the shoot with Vogue and I'd love to have you come out and, and be in the shoot. And I went, are you sure you got the right guy? I mean, I'm not really a model. And he goes, you don't know. I, I saw a picture in surfing magazine and, and, uh, you're the one I'd love to, I'd love to shoot you. And I, I, I said, okay, great. What, what's the date? And he gave me the date. And I said, ah, uh, can't make that. I got a, a surf contest. Um, thanks anyway. And I hung up the phone and, uh, that, I I bombed out in the first round of the contest (laughs) and I looked around for a phone, found another phone, called again, collect Bruce. Is it too late? Can I make it? And he said, Oh, you're, you still got time. So I flew home to Hawaii, did my laundry change and flew to New York and did my first shoot out in Long Island. And, uh, it, it, it got a bunch of pages in Vogue magazine and, and then, um, Couple years later, or one year later, Bruce got the the polo campaign, and he was ha- having a meeting with Ralph in the office. and And, and Bruce said, I, "I I shot this guy, Buzzy Kerbox, that I think he might be good for your for your brand." And so they flew me to New York, and dressed me up, and sent me into Ralph's office. And I've been working for him for forty years. So. <laughs> So what did,
1: what did Ralph Lauren see in your look? I mean, as I understand it, Ralph Lauren was very hands-on and, and, and picked the models and you know, really sort of cultivated this image because um, you're, you're the surfer bro from Hawaii. Like in the book, you say you can't match your surf shorts and your, your T-shirts. You don't like to wear shoes. Um, and especially in the early 80s, polo was so preppy, uber preppy, really East Coast. What, how, how, how did they make that work? What did, what did what did they see?
2: I'm not sure what they saw, but <laughs> <laughs> apparently I uh, have a resemblance to some of the Kennedys. So they it was a preppy Kennedy look, and when they dressed me up, I just fit the part, and I was it was kind of like being an actor. You know, you you get into the wardrobe and and you play the part, and I guess I played it well and looked like the preppy, and then I you know peel back and put on my shorts and flip flops and get out of there. Yeah, In in the book, you note that they, they would get
1: annoyed with you because you weren't wearing the preppy clothes around. You're like back in your surfer attire, huh?
2: Well, I had this strategy. I, I love their clothes, but I couldn't really afford it. So I was going, if I show up in other stuff, maybe they're going to go, well, Buzzy looks good. and Why don't we give him some of, the, some of our clothes? So I kept showing up in other stuff, and they're thinking, well, he never wears our stuff anyway, so why should we give it to him? <laughs> So my strategy backfired and they never gave me, well, they were pretty tight at the end of a shoot. It's like, Oh, that was a great five day shoot. Here you go. Here's one shirt.
1: Um, So, yeah, you know, I, I, as again, I was a kid, uh, I'd been looking up to you as a surfer. And then as a teenager, I started modeling like a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of us in our social circle did in Hawaii. And, um, uh, I, you know, one of the high points of my modeling career is when I got to shoot with Bruce Weber and I've, Um, I've got a story about him giving, uh, him wanting to give me a haircut, but in the book, you've got a good story about Bruce Weber, again, who is at at this point, this is early eighties. He is, he's one of the top photographers in the world. Right. And he wants to cut your hair and what, so what happened?
2: Well, we were in Barbados and we just did a, just at the end of a five day shoot, uh, did all this great stuff. And, uh, the last night we're going to be leaving the next morning, Bruce tells me, um, I really want to do a GQ cover try with you, but we got to cut your hair really short. This this would be the cover of GQ. Cu- well, yeah, it was a cover try. He That's said, right. and yeah. I was like, cover try. I, it's not for sure. You know, I'm going to cut my hair. And back then, back in Kailua, the, we lived by the military base, and all the all the Marines had really short hair. And I go, I'm going to go home, and they're going to think I'm in the military. And uh, I is, just went, which is social suicide, by the way. <laughs> and I just. um I just I didn't want to do it, and uh, at that at that point, I guess everybody, you know, Bruce Weber was the star maker, and everybody would do anything Bruce said, and and I didn't I just didn't want to do it, and I thought he would respect respect me for that that I stood up and and held my ground, but as it turns out, (laughs) he's never gotten over it. (laughs) I called him to interview him for my book, and it was like thirty years later, and I go. Ask him a bunch of questions, and I go, "Well, Bruce, is there anything you want to say?" He goes, "Yeah, there is. I remember this time when I I worked really hard with Don, Donald Sturzen to get you a cover try for GQ, and you wouldn't cut your hair." And, and I went, "I I know, Bruce. I'm I'm sorry. I've, I've regretted that decision ever since." He goes, "Well, I hope you've learned a lesson, but it I you know I think it really." Cost me a lot in my career because Bruce could have pushed a lot more, but that, that, uh, pissed him off and he never got over it. And, and it affected me, but at that stage, I just, I didn't want to do it. It was, you know, looking back, that was how stupid could you be? But
0: uh, at that point in my life, I just, I didn't want to do it. slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: I, lo- I love it. The decades later, Bruce Weber, the Bruce Weber is still ticked off about that. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. Well, here's my story. Um, so, and and, th- and and I bet that there was some trickle down effect from that because this would have been about 1985. I was 17. Um, I was with Kathy Muller um, and she got me a shoot with Bruce Weber and the Holly Kalani. And she said, this guy's the star maker do whatever he wants. And they had rented this big suite and they're shooting us in the balcony. And I had, you know, surfer model hair. And uh, they had a whole team of stylists. And at one point Bruce comes over and says, all right, I want to cut your hair. I'm like, okay, what do you want to do? He's like, I want to shave your head. I'm like, okay. They took me in the bathroom, shaved my head and then shot me on the Holly Kalani. I think it was for Italian Vogue. And he put me out of work for four months until my hair grew back. And like, that was at the point where I could have made it. Um, and uh, Kathy Muller was just livid. And she, I was like, Hey, you guys said, do whatever, do whatever
2: Bruce Weber wants. So maybe, maybe you made the right choice. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I wish I would have done it, but really I, look in reading my journals, because I didn't really remember what I was singing at the time. But I, at that point I was, I was becoming more famous for modeling and surfing then i wanted to be i was like i was getting a taste of it every airport i was in every plane people were recognizing me from something and it was kind of scaring me because i didn't i didn't like the flame, the the fame and and the notoriety that i was starting to get and it's like i, I kind of just want to be back in the shadows i don't want to be you know that famous i, I didn't like uh, the things that that came along with it
1: that's really interesting cuz cuz both professional surfing and modeling i mean you're you're selling yourself you're selling
2: images of yourself and you you pulled back from that
1: that's that's really interesting
2: yeah I, I had met some actors and some other people and watched their fame and how it affected them and i just i i didn't want that i just wanted to be you know be able to walk around uh, with no one recognizing me
1: yeah and and, and that kind of leads to sort of like the next act of your life is um you you're back in hawaii and you're you're phasing out of modeling and you you be. You know, one of the island's great watermen with your surfing skill, with your paddle paddleboarding skill, and um, uh, high level windsurfing when that was really taking off. Um, In the book, you've got some really great stories about when you became friends with Laird Hamilton, who's this very famous surfer who's been in a a lot of sort of breakthrough surfing celebrity in a lot of different um, uh, genres. Um, And you two would go on these paddleboarding adventures. Um, and, uh, could you tell us about, the, um, your trip to Europe and your, your paddleboarding adventure in the, uh, the English channel, and then also in the Mediterranean?
2: Well, Laird and I, um, really hit it. I'd known him fr- from a young age cause he used to live at pipeline and he'd hang out. So I knew who he was and knew him a little bit, but, uh, I really became friends with him on a GQ shoot that, uh, Bruce was doing, uh, Sean Thompson and, and was on that shoot and, we hit it off and realized we, at that point, had a really strong passion for windsurfing. And he had a place on Kauai, and I went and visited him and windsurfed over there. And then we started uh, surfing and windsurfing, doing stuff, and we started doing some paddle racing together. And uh, in 1990, we paddled the Molokai Channel. Um, it's a 32-mile channel, not very often paddleboarded. <laughs> was, was, the, the race wasn't a thing yet at that point. No, there no, was okay. no race. The race came, yeah. um, several years later and we decided let's, let's paddle this channel. So we, uh, went over and got dropped off at like six in the morning. We had no safety equipment and, uh, some water and, and, and paddled across. And it was a really windy, gnarly, strong current and took us longer than we thought. We got across there. And so we had that under our belt, and then Laird was getting ready to go to Europe for uh, windsurfing speed trials, and and there was some longboard events in in South of France, and so I was, let's go, I'll go with you, and um, since we're going to Europe, why don't we paddle the English Channel? So we we Laird, I remember he checked in sixteen pieces of luggage. He knew the lady at the counter, and we sixteen pieces of like she's like Laird's like. You know, we got a bunch of pieces so we had like 4 in the terminal and she said okay Larry sure bring them on and then we just kept bringing them out of the van <laughs> 16 pieces we got to to Europe and we went and uh drove around we rented a little car we drove up to to uh Calais and scoped it, got the chart, looked, you know, studied the channel a little bit and said, okay, in the morning we're going. And we had this photographer, Sylvan that was supposed to come shoot us. And in the morning, he didn't show up. I mean, there's no cell phones and you, you just kind of had, we had a message that to, to meet us, he, ne- he never did. So we parked the little car and jumped in the channel and uh, took six, five hours to to get across there. And we didn't really understand that it's the busiest shipping lane in the world.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're out there on paddle boards, which are, uh, were you riding uh, stock or? Yeah, 12-foot paddle so boards. 12, a 12-foot paddle board out there in the English Channel in the busiest shipping lane in the world.
2: So 20 minutes in, we're, we're doing fine. It's sunny and warm, and we're paddling across. And all of a sudden, this freighter is coming at us. And we're like, oh my God, we're we're not going to make it across in front of it. So we turned back towards France, started paddling back, and the thing kind of turned its course a little bit. Now, so we're still on a collision course. So we turned to England and said, just head that way, hold our course, and the thing passed below us. And uh there was other ships and there's the uh hydrofoils and all, all this stuff. We saw a lot of activity. And we got to about midway and there was a buoy. And it looked like a good place to stop and take a little break. So we uh, tried to paddle to this buoy. And with the five-mile-an-hour current, it took everything we have to, to get to the buoy. But we got there, latched on. I got some pictures of us on that on the buoy there, rested, ate an orange and a piece of chocolate, and jumped back in the water and started going. Wasn't long before this boat came up, and it was the Dover Rotary Club lifesaver boat. And they pulled up with a megaphone and said, "We've been sent by the Coast Guard to come pick you guys up." They didn't know if we were like broken down windsurfer or stranded, or they didn't know what you know. What are these guys doing out in the middle of the channel paddling? We're gonna <laughs>
1: totally crazy.
2: <laughs> we're gonna help them, and and Laird said, "Look, we came from Hawaii to paddle this channel, and we're gonna paddle it." So we just paddled away from each other and said, "If they're gonna get us." <coughs> They got to get us, and uh, they radioed back and got permission to escort us the rest of the way. So uh, we continued on, and they um, they stayed with us. And as we got closer to England, uh, I was getting hypothermic, and I didn't. I've never been hypothermic. I didn't understand how it just shuts every organ in your body you're, you're down. You're from Hawaii. You've never been cold. And uh, so I was getting <coughs> shut down. Laird, Laird carried on and got there. And, uh, I was, I was struggling, you know, at a fatigue level that I've never experienced. And the little boat, you know, pulled up, I'm like a half mile off. I can see the shore and they go, you, you don't look good. You've got to get in the boat. You'll be fine. You know, and I, I just had, my head was laying down. I go, no, I, I came to do this and I'm going to finish it. And I just kept paddling till I made it to the shore, I got to shore and I looked in these rocks covered with seaweed. They just look like the most comfortable bed I've ever seen. I go, just let me lay down for a minute. I'll be fine. I just need to rest a minute. And uh, oh, no, no. You know, that's, that's when, when hypothermia takes over and you don't wake up. But so they took us to the hospital and uh, my core temperature was 88 degrees and we had to warm up slowly over a four hour period. And then uh, we got back on a ferry went back and got back to our car and went back to Paris
1: <laughs> so, <I> mean, <laughs> you you nearly died in this in this
2: uh, crossing I don't know exactly how low your temperature can go before you're taken out but it was this doesn't I, sound good. I was probably on the border
1: so of course after that you guys learned your lesson and
2: um, aren't gonna get into any other misadventures in Europe on your paddle boards, right of course, yeah, that was near death. So we're, we'll never do that again. Until Laird came up with the idea that he wanted to go to Corsica, out in the Mediterranean, and paddle over to Italy. And he's he had been out there on a windsurfing adventure. And I'm, we're thinking, well, the Mediterranean, there's not nearly as much current. There's no sharks. There's it's no just, sharks. It's well, just
1: except for where was the world's largest great white shark ever
2: uh, caught? We did learn that fact. <laughs> After, I, I had no idea there was any sharks, and let, let alone like the biggest great whites ever. But uh, so, so Laird had the idea. So we, we got out there and uh, we, we took a ferry with our car, got to Corsica, drove around until we came across this place. And we got out and looking, looking around and all of a sudden Laird jumps off the cliff and it's i'm just watching him fall 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 into the clear water i can see boulders and he splashes into the water and i'm like oh my god and he's like, come on it's good come on waving me on and i looked around and i said like, i guess i got to go so i jumped it and then uh, he goes okay tomorrow when we start our paddle we're going to start here we're going to jump off the cliff and then paddle he's like, yeah that's the idea instead of just walking off the beach like a normal person yeah like a normal person But when you hang with laird you know he comes up with these ideas and and you can't sway him from that so the next morning the we had a helicopter came from france to film it and uh we told we're going to jump off this cliff and oh that's great that's great and they got out there and filmed it and and then they landed and we we're getting ready to go. And they go, that was really good. Now we want to shoot it from another angle. That was, and we're like, uh, no, no, that was good. <laughs> that's that's all you get. So we go back down and our boards uh, we're, were down by the water. Well, a gust of wind knocked my board over and completely smashed the tail. And it's a styrofoam that sucks water. So if you have any kind of open thing, it's just going to fill up with water. I went, oh my God, I guess we can't go. And Laird just grabbed it with his hands and smash it back straight. And we happen to have five minute epoxy. So we slathered that over the tip and, and, uh, and this, this is before you've even started before we've <laughs> even started. And also I had a camera. I had a little case on the, on the paddleboard with my waterproof camera and that had fallen into, to the sea there. And it was about 40 feet down. And just looking down, it's like, oh, God, I guess I don't have a camera. Well, we just look over, and here comes a scuba diver. And so we wave the scuba diver over. He doesn't speak English, and we hand sign a camera down there, get it. And the guy swam down, came back, hand me the camera, stuck it back in, and then we started our paddle. And uh, fortunately, I mean, that, that little waterproof camera is all we had to shoot with back then, so I was able to document and got some some good shots of the trip. And so we start – we start paddling, and uh, the helicopter filmed us for a little while. And they went back and landed, and uh, we're paddling, paddling, paddling. This island is not getting any closer. So you're paddling
1: we're, from Corsica from, to to Elba, to Elba, where, yeah. where Napoleon was um, exiled. Yeah, you, you know why he he escaped? No, there wasn't enough Elba room. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's one of my dad's favorite jokes. <laughs>
2: Okay. anyway, so, so we had you know we had studied studied the chart and it was thirty-seven. It didn't say what. And and we're in Europe, we're going, well, that's gotta be kilometers. Thirty-seven kilometers, is twenty-four miles. The, the metric Met- system of the Med- Mediterranean right? Sea, this is easy. Boom. The wind never blows out of the west until the day we're paddling. So we're facing a headwind, getting splash sprayed. And we paddle, paddled, and about three hours in, I see the helicopter flying back from Elba and go by us, like a mile away, we're waving. Of course, they didn't see us, and, and they flew on on away. And I'm thinking, well, they must have landed and dropped our passports, our clothes, and I had a, it was my 34th birthday. They must have dropped my bottle of champagne, and somebody's going to be there waiting for us. <laughs> That'd be nice. So we keep paddling, paddling. Five hours, six hours, seven hours, finally getting a little closer, how, eight hours. How many hours were you anticipating? Uh, we thought we'd be there in three hours. We arrived at dark in nine hours. Oh, jeez! And there was a little uh, boat ramp, and it was kind of a desolate little island. We're <clears throat> walked Walked up the boat ramp and up and found these two little restaurants. And I walked up to the first one. There's no... I had a visa car. That's, that was my safety equipment. And, uh, the first one didn't have the little visa flag. And so I went to the next one and there was nobody there, but it had the visa thing. So we left our boards in the bushes, walked in on our wetsuits. I looked at us like we we're out of our minds and said, well, you guys can come in, but you got to sit out on the deck because you're all you're dripping wet. <laughs> so we sat there and ordered dinner and, uh, And I ordered champagne and the guy said, where did you guys come from? And we, we told him, he goes, that's 44 miles. We're like, shit, no wonder it took so long. (laughs) It was 37 nautical miles, 44 statute miles. So we said, well, okay. So, um, where's the, where do we catch the ferry when go home in the morning? he goes, well, it's, uh, September 25th It's off season. Uh, the ferry's not running anymore. okay well where's where's the airport we'll we'll catch a little flight uh the airport's not open either i we're looking peering across the channel going oh my god we really have to paddle back i mean we thought about we considered it as as sick a thought as that was we considered it but uh so we said okay well how do we get back he said well you got to take a ferry to mainland italy and then uh, take a bus up to Liverno and that's where the ferries uh, run back to Corsica. So that's what we did. Took but, us. Uh, but
1: you've got you guys have twelve foot paddle boards, wetsuits, and a visa card. Yep, and a camera.
2: Uh, yep. What what a, clothes? Uh, well, I Shoes? bought. Shoes. I bought us a couple sweatshirts. And we went into a, a shoe store and the shoes were all like two, three hundred bucks. I mean, forget that because I'm like, I got to buy two pairs. No, I mean, we were on a tight budget. And I was like, no, I'm not buying that. We, we we're we just getting by, you know. So uh, we traveled around in Italy barefoot and people look at us like we are aliens. I mean, it's like we might as well be naked the way they'd look at us. Do did you, did you buy pants or were you in your wetsuits? Oh, just our wetsuits, no, just a sweatshirt. (laughs) Just a wetsuit, sweatshirt, (laughs) no shoes, and 12
1: foot surfboards cruising around through through Italy. Yeah.
2: Yeah, We got on the bus, our boards fit in the luggage compartment by about one inch. And so we got in there and, uh, made it back to our, our car in Corsica, took the ferry back to France and went and tracked down the guys and that left us. Like, where, where, you guys left us. I said, well, we're running out of gas. We couldn't find you guys. We had to fly, fly back. We got our stuff. And so we uh, jumped in the car and we we're driving back to, to uh, Biarritz. And we're on this windy road, in the you know, country road. We're a couple hours out of Biarritz. We come around this turn and there's a deer in the road there it's swir- we kind of hit the edge of the deer and he swerved to miss it but we still kind of caught the edge and flew off the road into the bushes and it was just whoosh, 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 I was just in my mind slow mo. i thought oh we're gonna flip here but somehow we didn't roll and uh the next thing i know we're like stuck in the bushes with our little car in the dark you know out in the country nobody around fortunately we had uh not horsepower, but we had Laird power to help push the car back, up the embankment, back on the road, made it back to Biarritz, went back to the rental car place, walked in. I mean, the car was beat on every, the board smashed in the top, the deer smashed over here, the other stuff. There wasn't a a piece of that car that wasn't smashed. And we went to the ladies and said, we need a faster car. <laughs> <laughs> they gave it to us well
1: <laughs> admittedly here here come two two top models i mean they're i'm sure you guys get whatever you wanted <laughs> that's that's hilarious um so okay as if that
2: wasn't enough um so few, one little yeah, side note yeah. while, while we were in paris on yeah. our way up we went to this nightclub and uh ran into barishnikov and and grace jones and it was like you know we we're there at two in the morning and Laird told Borisnikov that he, maybe he should be home sleeping. It was kind of late for him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man.
1: Uh, so as if that wasn't enough, um, you and Laird, uh, back on Oahu on the North Shore, um, are getting a little fed up with the crowded waves, surfing, and um, decide to start uh, playing around with boats and, uh, and the big waves. So what happened? How did you how did you invent towing in surfing?
2: Well, I had a Zodiac inflatable boat that I uh, played around in on flat days in Kailua. We'd tow around with a tow rope called freeboarding where you just, you know, kind of surf behind the boat. And uh, we just, at, at that point, uh, Laird and Derek Dorner and I were doing a lot of windsurfing on the North Shore as well as surfing. But uh, we, we realized that on the outer reefs, out at, at backyards and phantoms, these waves were so perfect out there. You couldn't really tell how good they were from shore but once you got out there and they're, they're half mile out way out there we're like these waves are really good let's take my zodiac and we'll tow ourselves onto these waves and and avoid the crowd so uh my first try there and i went out in my boat with a 40 horse and we could barely outrun the waves we decided we needed a bigger motor And it's hard to find a bigger motor that fits the short shaft required for a Zodiac. But Laird had connections on Kauai with Nepali Zodiac. They found an old 60 horse Mercury rebuilt it for us and sent it over. So the next season, we went back with the 60 horse. We put the steering on because before I was just holding the engine, the 40 horse, you could hold the little stick but the 60 horse. was hard. So we put the steering on there and went out and, uh, started towing in and realized that, uh, it was pretty spectacular. We were using our, our our big wave guns and towing into these waves and just having a blast. And
1: and, and and these were waves that were big enough that it would have been very difficult to paddle into under your own ability, under human ability, right?
2: Well, the early days, it, it was. I mean, we weren't on the first times we we're going. they were like fifteen or twenty foot faces. They weren't, you know, huge, but they were way out there. I mean, yeah. to to paddle out to them, you, you'd have to paddle way out and be on your own. And, uh, you know, those first ones weren't gigantic, but they were big. But the, the toe-in technique was able to put us right on early and get long rides and get picked up. And we're like, this is great. But we just thought, you know, it's something for us to have fun. We didn't have any vision that this is going to change the world of surfing.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, so so tell us what happened. I mean, like, what, what what were the consequences of of you guys goofing around in the Zodiac?
2: Um, well at, at first other guys, we'd come in and guys are, who do you think you are? The undrownables out there. That's crazy. You, you know, you're riding these waves and you didn't paddle on them and no, you, you don't deserve to be on those waves if you didn't paddle on them. And so we got some grief, but we were out there having so much fun and, uh, and just loving it. And, and then, uh, Laird worked on a movie called endless summer Two. And at the end of the movie, they had these, uh, wave runners and, and Laird said, well, you know, I want you to give me one of those wave runners for, for working on the film. So they did. So we had the, the, uh, the wave runner and we started towing with that and realizing that was way better than the Zodiac. But we, so we use the Zodiac as a mothership, carry the extra boards, the extra guy and get out there and tow. And we're having a blast. And while we were doing that our friends on maui were windsurfing this place called uh, jaws and so we got on the phone and, and laird was talking to mike waltz and telling him yeah mike we towed in onto these waves it's unreal and mike waltz is going well we windsurfed this wave off maui up the coast and it's it's a killer wave and that might be good so we uh we didn't have trailers and for the boat or the ski we'd throw them in the back of the truck so we decided we got to get our toys over to Maui. So we drove them over it's like, uh I don't know, a hundred miles <laughs> drove, drove this jet ski across the Molokai channel the wrong way upwind. Well, where... we, we, no, we waited for a, a, a Kona storm. Okay, so it was <laughs> uh picked the right day, but it was when the wind blows Kona's it's also a storm. So it was like blowing like 30 Kona wind. And, uh, uh, Derek donor dropped us off. It was Mike Waltz, Laird and I in the, Laird was on the ski. I was driving the Zodi, and uh, we headed across the channel downwind, keeping dry. It was amazing. We got all the way to the backside of Molokai and we had to pull in and uh, refuel. I had some extra gas and, you know, there was no wind and we're filling the gas and all of a sudden like 60 mile an hour gusts would come out of the valleys over there. And it's just like, well, put the gas cup, cover the thing. And yeah. Lock- the back, the backside of Molokai is, is,
1: a really amazing place. I mean some of the world's largest sea cliffs just coming straight down and just very few places to put into port there. There's Kalapapa and a couple other spots. I mean, so you're 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 now like in one of the most remote places in the islands. You two on a jet ski zipping along.
2: And so at one point there was this place. I, I jumped on the jet ski. I wanted to go in closer and, and uh investigate and look at it. It's so beautiful there, just incredible. Cool. And I went in, cruised around. Maybe lost track of time a little bit, and all of a sudden I just go, "Where's the zodiac?" and I couldn't find them. And it's like, you know, four in the afternoon, it's getting late. We're on this remote island, where it's like, so I just had to like go out and start heading down. And finally, I reconnected with them, and we made it to finally made it to Maui. And then um, we took uh, the wave runner and the ski as the mothership, and went out and and tested out the. Uh, this place jaws and it was you know maybe 15 foot waves and tested it and it was really good and we're like wow this wave is pretty good i wonder how big a waves this could handle you know no idea and we realized later that it can handle as big as mother nature can send it and then there's been you know 80 foot waves written out there and it's like the most perfect uh big wave spot in the world yeah and so again,
1: for the, the, the non-surfers in the audience, I mean, this, this revolutionizes big wave riding and, and brings, brings waves that were deemed, um, unsurfable that you couldn't paddle into, into possibility of being surfed. And I think right now there's a documentary on HBO about, um, uh, a famous big wave in Portugal and the way that they've, uh, they've approached that and they do a lot of toe in there. So the hundred
2: foot wave. Yeah. The yeah. Garrett McNamara story just came out on HBO. It's yeah. a five part series and that's definitely worth watching.
1: So, so once again, you're right there at this, this like crucial turning point in the history of surfing. Um, we don't have too much more time, but, and I, I mean, I want to note that you also did um, stunt work on films like Waterworld world and um, and, uh, what, what else did you do? It's like a crazy uh, in, mountain. In God in
2: God's hands. In God's I hands. did the wipe out for that. And, uh, and I did this mountain dew commercial, you know, when you go on these guys as a model, you go on these castings and they go, uh, who will, uh, boogie board off a 50 foot waterfall. And usually everybody, I will, I can, I can, I said, yeah, I can do that. And no one else, uh, <laughs> said, no one else's hand went up.
1: So you went in as a model. Yeah, But then it became a stunt man. Yeah,
2: yeah, that was, I hadn't done any stunt work really at that point. And, but, you know, I needed work and it was, the, you know, I'd go on commercial castings and, oh, there's this Mountain Dew commercial. Great. So I go in on the casting and then that was the request. Boogie board off a 50 foot waterfall. So I ended up uh, scouting it out and, and went and did it. And it was, uh, you know, at one point I went and looked at it and we dove the bottom and I go, okay, I'll go from here. And so two weeks later, I'm back up on that spot, looking down over the waterfall and there's cameras all set up. And I was like, shit, did I really say I was going (laughs) to do this? This looks pretty gnarly. And then you had to, and then in the countdown, it's like, I, I, I gotta go. So I had to dive off with the boogie board and then pitch it at the last second and just sort of do a sprawly dive into the, to the water. And, uh, I had to do it three times. And then after they wanted more, Oh, this is great. Another angle, uh, that's all I got. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, more, more recently you've gotten,
1: uh, well, you, you paddleboard racing, which you've been doing for most of your life. And then more recently got back into it. And at age 60, you decided you wanted to do the solo paddle from Molokai to Oahu, uh, which is, has now become a, a formal race and it's a big competitive event. Um, I I grew up in Hawaii. Grew up uh, on my dad's boat. Um, I think the first time I did the the Oahu to Molokai crossing, I was three years old. That it is it is really one of the roughest channels in the world. I think I think maybe alinu Nui between um, Maui and, and Big Island is worse, shorter but worse. But this is a really intense body of water. And at age sixty, um, you're going to do the race. So what 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 motivated you and and um, Also, um, tell us, can you tell us a bit about that race, what it's like and why it's so intense, both physically and mentally?
2: Well, it's, it's like a marathon for surfers, um, you know, to, to, or paddlers. And, uh, it's something that I had done 13 times already solo. And, and the the last few years I had done it as a team where we take turns and I, you know, it's like when I was Closing in on fifty, I wanted to be fit at fifty. So I started working out and and tried to be by the time I hit fifty, I want to be in good shape. And so I was in at fifty, I was in good shape. But then, you know, into my fifties and moving on. And then I I I set it as a goal to help myself really focus on training hard to to be in top shape. And I went solo at sixty and it and it had a ring to it. I thought solo at sixty. Yeah. <laughs> so it's something I I wanted to do. So I trained really hard for it and been doing a bunch of the smaller races. And, uh, and, uh, it was, it was one of the harder things I've ever done. Uh, the, the first half of the race I was, I was doing great. And, and then we, it, uh, I was ahead of all the guys I wanted to beat and then the water got rough. And then the, the current starts fighting you. I, I'm good at catching the glides and 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 having being able to tap into the energy, and that's my forte out there. This is the, <laughs> these are the
1: you're going downwind, so these are the ocean swells, and you're sort of getting a boost from the waves as you're paddling. Right? Yeah,
2: yeah, I was good at that. And then once you get about halfway, the current starts uh, defending Oahu and going the wrong way, and I'd slow down, and so it was uh, it was really hard. I, I mean. I I didn't drink enough water stupidly. I had my camel back and went to change it halfway and it was still like half full of water and oh God, I haven't been drinking. And once once you get to that point, it's hard. But I was still a couple hours out and already tired and and you know, could think of a hundred reasons why I should just quit. And uh, you know, thinking of oh, what would I say? and then I just went, you know, I've been pushing people to to get off the couch and stay in the game and and, and set a goal and go for it. So I went for for all those people. I've got to finish. So I just buckled down and fought the current and fought it. And uh, the my uh, my rival Jeff Chang was uh, had passed me and pulled ahead. And I knew I wasn't going to get him. But I go. I've just got to finish. And as we approached Oahu, I get pulled more north up you know the wrong way and, and was really challenged in the in the current. My escort. Uh my good friend Mark LeBrie was my escort and he knew that I was tired. And so he just stayed away from me. He goes, Buzzy's gonna try to wave me over and get in the boat. I'm not gonna get near him. And he just stayed away. And then uh I was uh probably a mile out, and my son showed up on the jet ski and and uh just egged me on. Come on, you got this. And and I finished and uh I was second to Jeff Chang in the 60 division, but I beat all the fifties and most of the forties.
1: That's fantastic. (laughs) That's
2: great. So, um,
1: the book is also a lot about friendship and, um, you know, paradoxically surfing is a solo sport. Um, you know, one person on a wave doing their thing. I mean, it it has a communal aspect and all being a part of the tribe surfers and so forth. But for me, I always um, really liked uh, William Finnegan's uh, memoir *Barbarian Days*, that won the the Pulitzer Prize for a memoir uh, about surfing. And he describes, um, you know, being a being a haole kid in Hawaii and and finding solace in, in in surfing, getting away from all the troubles on land. But your stories in the in the book are, are so much about community, the friendship on the beach, and um, then especially with the big wave riding and and what you guys are doing with the toe in. Um, there's a lot more of uh, uh, bonding. Um, can you reflect on the relationship between friendship and uh, and surfing?
2: Well, I think you know, as a as a photographer, I would take a lot of pictures, and you get these landscapes, and they're cool. But then I take pictures of people, and I, there's just nothing more interesting than people. Maybe the background is the mountain, <clears throat> but if you take a picture just that mountain, it's n- it's not nearly as much. And I, I just you know, came to terms with people are the most important thing in this world and friends, friends mean more than anything. And having, uh, tight friendships is that that's, that's what it's all about. So, um, I think it's really important. And, and we took surfing from an individual sport where you paddled out by yourself to, to a team where your, your driver, your team guy was, you know, looking out for you. You look after him and you build this relationship of, trust and friendship. And, uh, I think that, uh, applies, you know, when you're surfing and anything in life, I mean, having good friends, true friends that, that are gonna pull in when you need help. That's, that's the most important thing in life. And, and, you know, I'm on, on this book tour right now, and I'm going around and I'm meeting some old friends and, uh, seeing, seeing old friends and meeting new people. And that, that's, uh, that just means the world to me.
1: Yeah. And there's, there's some really nice uh, sections at the end of the book where you talk about the importance of family and, uh, and, and so forth. Um, and there's some nice words of wisdom. Um, what, you know, what have you learned from your life in the ocean? What can you, what do you want to impart on to people?
2: I, I mean, what, the reasons I wanted, somebody just asked me the other day, why did you want to write a book? And I said, well, I, I wanted to entertain people and I want to inspire people. And so I think some of my stories are pretty entertaining. And also the message that, that I hope comes through is inspire people to set goals and go after things in life. And your friendships um, mean more than anything. And, and I wanted to, to try to get that across in an interesting way. Yeah, that's, that's really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so where can people
1: find a copy of Making Waves?
2: Well, right now, the only place you can find it is, uh, in my truck or on my website. (laughs) Uh, it's buzzycurbox.com and it's just, you know, my website is, is me at home, uh, signing books and sending them out priority mail. Um, so that's, uh, it's, this has been a personal project and it's, uh, it's very grassroots. It's, you won't find it on Amazon. It's just my story. It's a personal story with a personal message and, and you just can get it from me personally and I've got 400 left and when they're done, they're done. Cause I don't think I'm going to order anymore cause it's uh it's a, uh, it's been an adventure and uh, I've loved it, but I'll probably move on and, and do other things after this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I think it's a fantastic book um the, the stories are great the
1: images are fantastic and that you know this is something you curated out of out of your own personal archives so as a as a professional historian i just love seeing these kinds of projects so buzzy kerbox uh, mahalo thank you for speaking with me today it's been a real honor to chat with you i mean you again you were one of my my heroes as a kid
2: that's fun to hear and you know traveling around and people are telling me, I had your picture on my wall when I was a kid, this and that. I mean, I did, I did. when I was doing <laughs> stuff, I, I had no idea who saw anything I did or you never know. So, you know, I'm out there meeting people that, that knew of me and uh, it's really fun. It's exciting to to get out and uh, rub shoulders with everybody out there. And and that's why I called this, this my book tour, Taking It to the People. Fantastic.
1: Um, uh, by the way, uh, new books listeners, uh, there's a few other podcasts I've done on the history of surfing uh, interviewed Scott Laterman on his book, empire and waves, a political history of surfing. I also chatted with um, Chaz Smith uh, about his, uh, he's sort of the bad boy of surf journalism uh, about his book, um, uh, cocaine and surfing. Um, and so look into the catalog and there's uh there's some good episodes. So this has been a conversation with Buzzy Kerbox, author of Making Waves, published by Legacy Isle Publishing in 2019. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Mahalo for listening. Aloha.
0: 18- plus.